Leonard Lopate at large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Bernie Sanders' second bid for the presidency began in the Washington, D.C. apartment of his deputy campaign manager, Ari Rabinhoft, in January 2018. Mr. Rabinhoft spent more hours between 2017 and 2020 with the Vermont senator than anyone else. And in a new book titled The Fighting Soul on the Road with Bernie Sanders, he offers an intimate behind-the-scenes portrait of his sometimes cranky boss, including his heart attack in Las Vegas, his debate encounter with fellow progressive Elizabeth Warren and a memorable conversation between him and Barack Obama that's never been reported before. The book is published by W.W. Norton and brings Ari Rabinhoff to our show now. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Leonard. When a reporter asked you in the summer of 2020 why you were always smiling, you answered, simple. I work for a 78-year-old Jewish socialist who had a heart attack a few months ago and has won the popular vote in Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada. That sounds like a, a mixed message. Um, I mean, this was, this, sorry, this was in the winter. This was during the, uh, the height of the primary where we were, you know, what was remarkable about that moment was on October 1st, I was sitting in a hospital in Las Vegas with my, my boss who had just had a heart attack. I was one of two staffers with him when the, the incident occurred. And um, the other staffer who was with him, his body man and trip director, Jesse, um, frankly, Jesse had literally begun in the position at five in the afternoon that day. Hmm. Um, so it was quite a first day for Jesse, to be honest. And so, you know, experiencing that to where we were in fourth place in Iowa, we were in third place nationally um, the day he had the heart attack, to winning the plurality of the vote in Iowa, winning the New Hampshire primary, overwhelming everybody in Nevada, it was it was almost miraculous. Like here you had Bernie Sanders on the edge almost of the Democratic nomination at that moment. Now, he remained Bernie Sanders. Didn't he ask the EMTs in the ambulance about their jobs and benefits? Yes, he was asking about their health care. It was, you know, <laughs> it was this really strange moment. Uh, you know, we were at an event. We had flown into Las Vegas, kind of nothing Nothing out of the ordinary. We went to the healing garden for the victims of the mass shooting. Um, he was headed to a what we call the grassroots, like low dollar, $25 type fundraiser. Um, we had stopped at a Starbucks. Him and I had an argument about the schedule the next day. Nothing unusual except the fact that he was arguing for less events at that moment, which was kind of out of character. Um, at the event, he asked for a chair, which was that's when I knew something was extremely wrong because he never asked for chairs. He never likes to sit down when he's on stage. He always likes to stand up. We got in the car. He said he didn't want dinner. You know, there were a lot of signs uh, made the decision that we should go to urgent care. And so there was never like this moment where you see in like the movies where somebody grips their chest. It was just a, a amalgamation of symptoms basically that caused me to think we should go to the hospital, which turned out to be very correct. Um, and how serious did it turn out to be? I mean, he had a fully blocked artery right in his heart. That's he needed a stent put in. It was a very it was serious. Right. That's if he hadn't gone to the hospital in that moment, because we went at that time and caught it at the moment we did. It was very easily treatable. But it's one of those, you know, with a com stent, which is a very common procedure. You know, mm -hmm. he, he was kind of almost back to normal right after. Um, what if we hadn't done that in his heart, if he had gone back to his hotel room that night and continued to have the, the fully blocked artery and we had waited, it would have been a completely different story. The fact that, you know, we were able to like move so quickly was part of the reason. But in the in the process of this, we're at an urgent care center. They say his, he's got this blocked artery. We have to move him to the hospital. They obviously have to do that in an ambulance. The ambulance comes. He's awake. They tell him he has to give me his wedding ring. He hands me his wedding ring. They say he has to get, like, give him, take his glasses. He responded with an expletive to that. Um, you know, he's up and awake and he's Bernie, even in the midst of having a heart attack. It, it is kind of remarkable. Well, wouldn't most politicians drop out of a race after they've had a heart attack? He was 78 years old uh, and he was losing ground at that time. We were, we were, we were down. And what was interesting was, so I assumed that night, perhaps wrongly, that we were 
dropping out. I was in the way he's in getting the stent put in. I'm in a waiting room with me. They gave us a private waiting room with me, Jesse and another staffer, Charla Bailey. Um, uh, we, the three of us were sitting there and I told them, I was like, look, this race is over, right? We're working for a 78 year old who just had a heart attack. Um, but we have to don't like, you can't act like the race is over. We have to like we all are loyal to Bernie. We have to like punch through until, until this is over. We owe it to him to like, make sure we do our best job right now. Because um, he felt that his message was more important at that point. Well, I, what would, we walked in the next morning, you know, Jane had flown in That's his Chicago wife. From, for his wife, Jane, Faz, the campaign manager had flown in. We all kind of met at the hospital in the midday, basically one or two o'clock. Um, I had been there all night, basically, except going back to my room to shower. Um, uh, we and he said, like he walked, we walked in. He was kind of up in his hospital bed, all no tubes, no. It was very strange to me. Like the man just had a heart attack, and he's totally, you know, he only has, he doesn't have any tubes in, doesn't have anything. He's like ready to go. And we have this conversation. He says, "Look, I if the voters, the voters will know my medical condition. If they don't want to vote for me, that's fine." But I have something to campaign on, and I think it's important that my voice is still in the race. And if 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 the doctors say I can't, that's one thing. And the doctors weren't saying that; they were saying there's no reason you can't continue. You're, if you take two weeks right now, see a cardiologist. There's no reason you can't continue a vigorous schedule. And if you can't, if the voters think I can do it, it's up to them, and I want to leave it up to them. And while he was in, still in the hospital, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez called to offer her endorsement. Uh, that which was, really was actually central point. to a Bernie is back campaign. Yeah, that was really the turning point. We were sitting in the in the hospital, as I describe in the book, and um, he, kind of, he Bernie shut off his phone because he was getting, you know, his phone didn't stop ringing. And he kind of was like enough. Right. I everyone was calling to see how he was. Um, Harry Reid was the one person who stopped by. We didn't publicly announce the hospital. I, I um, Harry Reid was my former boss and Faz's former boss. And he called Faz and he goes, yeah, I'm coming. And Faz was like, to, you know where we are? And he knew the hospital, the room number, the doctors and everything about his medical condition, which caused us to, which was none of which was, you know, the hospital asked us not to release which hospital because they didn't want to deal with the security issue of that. They already were dealing with enough security issues with him there. And so we hadn't released the hospital. We certainly didn't release the room number. It's like which caused us to believe that HIPAA obviously doesn't exist for Harry Reid in the state of Nevada because he knew everything. He stopped by, um, but he Bernie was like I I too, like I want to think about what I want to do next, how I want to do this. He shut off his phone. Um, my phone rings. It's uh, Alexandra Ocasio Cortez's communications director, this guy Corbin Trent, who's like, Hey Ari, can you tell your boss to pick up his um, effing phone? Basically, he'll want to take this call. So he's like, Faz's phone's going to ring too. Faz's phone rings. It's AOC. He Corbin's like, have give Bernie the phone. Faz gives Bernie the phone and she says, hey, I want to support your campaign. And we kind of immediately set out in the in the hospital room preparing how we were going to roll it out. Uh, We knew we wanted to do a big rally. I I, I'm going to be honest, Leonard, as a New Yorker, I always and somebody who's done politics, I always had a vision for a long time of a giant rally in Queensbridge Park. Nobody had ever really used it for that purpose. We had two weeks. We went to the city. We got permission and it rolled out what I think was just a beautiful event in like an iconic New York place with the 59th Street Bridge coming over the top of the rally. Now, Bernie's retained his Brooklyn accent. How much did you learn about his childhood in a working class family in the Midwood section of Brooklyn? Um, more than others, but still not not much. I include a lot of it in the book. You know, Bernie. Bernie I have a friend who was at the school at the time. She says she remembers him as an athlete. Yes, he was a spectacular athlete. And by the way, that's the thing that I think people when they meet Bernie for the first time, the thing they always say is, wow, he's tall and athletic like he's built. He's built like an athlete. He you know, and this is a guy who he's still out there playing basketball with his grandkids, loves kicking around soccer balls, loves hitting baseballs um, and was one of the top runners in New York City as a high school student. And he was also a Brooklyn Dodgers fan. Didn't he say that the three worst people in history were Hitler, Stalin and Walter O'Malley? 
Well, that was the old, I guess, an old Brooklyn joke from the mm -hmm. time. And what had happened is we were at, um, we were in Arizona during spring training and we went over to Dodgers training camp. And first off, he wore the Brooklyn hat. The team handed him an LA hat and he said, no, thank you. I'll keep on the, uh, <laughs> I'll keep on the Brooklyn hat. Um, and he made the joke, which I guess is an old Brooklyn joke from his childhood. The three worst people in history are Hitler, Stalin, and Walter O'Malley, not necessarily in that order. He attended Brooklyn College for one year. Uh, I, I remember there was no tuition in those days. So what led him to transfer to the University of Chicago? You know, he's very quiet about this. I think, first off, his mom had passed in that period. And I think a lot of his late high school, early college years surrounded the trauma of his mom being in very poor health, being in a hospital, a medical facility for a lot of that time, um, experiencing that without having money. Um, and I think he wanted to, frankly, um, he had an offer to attend the University of Chicago, and I think he did desire to get out of Brooklyn. How old was he when he began, began to become interested in politics? Didn't his parents tell him he was crazy if, if he told them he'd become a senator and perhaps even president of the United States? Well, what it, what it was was what he told me, and I quote him in the book saying this, if he had told his parents growing up he was going to be a senator and run for president, they would say he was hmm. crazy. His political evolution is interesting. He got to college and he doesn't know what... Um, he doesn't really have his ideology. He has somewhat of an ideology, but it's based a lot, by the way, based on the Brooklyn Dodgers leaving Brooklyn. As he said, it was, it was as if a wealthy person could take Prospect Park and move it. He, it was the first time he understood wealth trumped community. But he began to really read and be in the library and understand. And one of the things I have in the book is a letter he wrote to the Brooklyn College to the to the Brooklyn College paper protesting for use of a lawn at Brooklyn College, which we finally got to use for the first rally of the campaign, by the way. Mm -hmm. He was it was shut off when he was in college, but we did get to use it that lawn for the first rally of the campaign. But, you know, he kind of started developing an ideology in college. He ran a few times in Vermont as kind of a gadfly before winning his mayor's race in 1980 by 10 well, votes. Well, how did he wind up in Burlington, Vermont, where he was reelected three times as an independent? Was he already calling himself a democratic socialist at the time? He was, yes. Yeah, so he was part of a 19, so he, he kind of, he graduated college. He went up to Vermont. He kind of kicked around a little bit. He went to Israel for a few months and lived on a kibbutz. He lived in New York City by Needles Park uh, for some of his life, which I didn't actually know and has never really been discussed until I was in a car with him in southern Manhattan and we were driving by in what was Needles Park. Uh, and he was like, oh, I used to play basketball there. Hmm. It was like, oh, and he's like, oh, my apartment. And he points he's like, was right there. That was my apartment. Um, and, you know, he went back up to Vermont in the 70s, he there was a group of kind of there was a political kind of third party forming and he was in a meeting with them and they said, so who's going to run for Senate? And he was like, OK, I'll run for Senate. And he got like a, a two or three percent of the vote. He ran for several offices and then he was going to be done running for office. And he always cast himself as a third party outside the Democratic Party as a democratic socialist. And in well, he called himself a Teddy Roosevelt socialist. I'm not exactly sure. Well, no, I call, you called he, him that? Yes. I, call, I, I, in an article in the New York Observer uh, a few years back, before I worked for him, wrote a profile where I compared him to Teddy Roosevelt. But he ran for Senate. So he ran for mayor uh, at the encouragement of, a, of his friend, Rabbi Sugarman and and another friend um, who's a poetry professor, Huck Gutman, at the University of Vermont, and ended up winning the mayor's race by 10 votes and then getting elected to Congress, winning that seat repeatedly, and then now three times being elected independent in the U.S. Senate. I'm speaking with Ari Rabinhaft. He's written a book called The Fighting Soul on the Road with Bernie Sanders, published by LiveRight. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Well, when he was the mayor of Burlington, 
He brought a minor league baseball team there, but he also had a radio show and he recorded an album of songs in in 1987. Yeah, so he very much believes in media as a form of communication. He had a public access TV show called Ask the Mayor, and uh, he did record an album of of folk music with local musicians, which uh, his voice, he would acknowledge it's not the best singing voice in the world, though you can hear his rendition of This Land is Your Land uh, online. And we will be playing that a little later, in fact. Uh, So you... uh let's get back to your connection with him. How did you wind up working with him? Because you, uh, as I mentioned earlier, you, you write that his run for the Democratic Party nomination in the 2020 election began in your Washington, D.C. living room in January 2018. So we so I was actually hosting a radio show and writing uh, from 2012 to 2016. And the election happened. I'd worked in politics before and. I decided after Trump's election, I really wanted to get back into day-to-day politics. I called, uh, I spoke to my former boss, Harry Reid, who I mentioned before, and he said, why aren't you working for Bernie? You're kind of just like him, like you should be working for him. And my friend Faz Shakir, who would ultimately become campaign manager, was close with Bernie. And I talked to Faz and Faz introduced me to Bernie. And we had an interview in his Senate office. And um we just clicked and uh, I started working for him in January in his Senate office and we, we moved forward from there. And it was a it it was it was uh, really the honor of my life to spend those three years by his side almost every day. It was his second run for the presidency. Had people been surprised by how successful he was in his 2016 campaign? Yeah, I think there was I think there was a surprise. I think when he announced people thought he would be just like Dennis Kucinich or, and I don't mean to insult Dennis Kucinich, but kind of a lefty who runs and gets two to 3% of the vote doesn't really galvanize. And I think, I think people saw something in his race. I think they saw his fundamental honesty. I think they saw his drive. I think they saw his integrity. And I think he was able to convince people that he was a realistic candidate for president and outshine expectations. And even though he's already, uh, rather elderly. He attracted a lot of younger supporters, even Cardi B, and he FaceTimed with her. Um, And you report that when he was driving in front of the Capitol, he stopped at a red light and a bunch of shrieking high school students ran up to the car to make selfies. And he chuckled and said to you, I'm like Mick Jagger, if Mick Jagger wore mittens. (laughs) Uh, Yes, he did not say the mittens part, but he did compare himself Uh to Mick Jagger. Um, he look, he is a I, I think with youth and I think his attraction to young people, he would say is because uh, young people have a BS detector and can tell when people are, are lying to them. I think there's a second factor, which is when he talks to young people, he actually listens. I've seen him so many times on the road without cameras, without reporters, without um and he pressed once in Iowa, we pulled over to community college, used the bathroom, and there was a band competition going on, a high school, like marching band competition. And he just pulled the band aside and they just had a com- conversation and he waved away any cameras. There was no recording. There was no, he just wanted to talk to what's going on in your life. What do you care about? What do you think about college? How are you thinking about paying for college? Really talking to them about the things they cared about. And the final thing is, if you look at the issues he believes in, They're not things that are going to affect his life. He's not saying, hey, I'm going to cut my taxes this year or even your taxes. What he's saying is, you know, first, I want to give do Medicare for all. Right. He has Medicare and he has the congressional plan. He doesn't need health care. He's got the best health care in the world. Um, I want to uh, tuition free public colleges and universities. He went to college when it was, as you pointed out, when Brooklyn College was tuition free. Um, That existed in his day. He wants to give that to others. Um, he uh, he wants um, uh, the Green New Deal to solve the climate crisis. And he would he you know, I, I hope he lives forever. But in all likelihood, we are seeing, by the way, around the world, some impacts of the climate crisis. But he probably won't be here for the worst impacts. That will be his grandchildren. But he's fighting for them. When he was in Queensbridge Park, he turned to the audience. He said he basically said this campaign is about fighting for somebody you don't know. And I think that's what draws people to Bernie. They know he's fighting for them. 
You drove tens of thousands of miles together, visited 36 states for rallies and support striking workers, ate most of your meals at chain restaurants, and you provide a list of his eccentricity. Has he discussed that with you since the book was published? Because some of them he might think were a bit embarrassing. I, I, he hasn't. I, look, I think the thing about those eccentricities are I think they make him who he is, and I think who he is, what I wanted to do was show that to people because I think it puts a full picture behind an incredibly historic person. And those eccentricities are what make him, give him his strength. That without those eccentricities, he would be a standard politician from New England and you probably would have never heard of him. Hmm. A, a New England politician with a Brooklyn accent, which is what struck me immediately when I first saw him. Now, you, you point out that he insisted on staying in small hotel rooms, not because of any political reason, but because he likes to sleep in cold rooms and big rooms take too long to cool down. And he also refused at one point to sleep in Margaret Thatcher's bed. Oh, yeah. That, so the Margaret Thatcher story is we had flown to um, to uh, Fulton, Missouri, to Westminster College, where Churchill had delivered the Iron Curtain speech. And uh, there's a yearly lecture that is kind of honors that speech that with that speech was part of this lecture series. And Bernie had been invited to give that lecture and we had flown there. And the the only hotel like next to campus is this bed and breakfast where every speaker stays. And so we get to the hotel. It's late at night. And they're like, Senator, you can stay. And he hadn't finished his speech yet. We had to go down and write his speech. Senator here, we always have the guests stay in the bed that Margaret Thatcher stayed in. And he like he was like, Nope. Ari, that's your room. And he stayed across the hall. And did um, he ever explain why? Because her politics like, were he, unacceptable. He does not like he does not like Margaret Thatcher. Like does not like her politics. Yeah. That's not his politics, right? Reagan and Thatcher are not are not his favorite politicians in the world. And his, you know, the small hotel room thing, I, my, my favorite switching hotel room one was we had shown up in Vegas for the Machinist Union Convention, which was at the Paris Hotel. And we didn't usually stay at the Paris Hotel um, because we rarely, we rarely wanted to stay at a hotel with a casino because it's just more difficult to move around with a, someone like him. Uh, you get mobbed in a casino floor, but their convention was at the Paris Hotel, so it made sense. Um, and the machinist convention had booked the hotel rooms for everybody. So we showed up and they if we didn't tell hotel rooms, don't put Bernie Sanders in a big suite. Hotels would always try to put him in a big suite. Right. And he just wanted the standard room because of what you said. He wanted to keep it cool. So we show up. They open the door to this giant, gaudy Las Vegas presidential type suite. He looks in the room. He goes, nope. And he turned to his body man at the time, this guy Terrell, and goes, Terrell, you stay in here. I'll stay in your room. And mm. marched to Terrell's room to stay in the normal room with the double bed. <laughs> Before the first debate in Miami during the Democratic primaries in 2019, Joe Biden rubbed Bernie uh, down the full length of his back with his hands, and Bernie swatted his hands away. So yeah, they, they did, did they the, get along in general? Yes, and that, that kind of showed almost their weird intimacy. The video, uh, Maureen Dowd tweeted out the video of this I when she wrote her column about the book, uh, The Fighting Soul. Yeah, that's where I uh, got it. Uh, you know, you can see in the video, all the candidates are lined up. You see Bernie, you see Kirsten Gillibrand, you see Biden, you see Kamala Harris. You see Pete Buttigieg, who, when this happens, makes a priceless face like, what am I? What, what is going on in my life? But Biden takes his hands and he's standing behind Bernie and just rubs the full length of his back. And Bernie gives him a, a light like, Joe, come on. Um, but look, their relationship is and I explore this in the book, and I think it's interesting for people to read. They have a very, you know, Bernie is not a backslapping politician like Joe Biden. He's not he's not. He's not unfriendly with people, but he's not close with them. But with Joe, they have a very friendly, good relationship with each other. And they've always they've always, despite their political differences, despite being on the opposite sides of the party, do respect each other immensely. And, and that shows less with Pete Buttigieg. Uh, yeah. it, less with he Pete was uh, he, during the Iowa caucuses. He called him the candidate of the wealthy elite. Uh, has that uh, had an impact now that Pete Buttigieg is Biden's secretary of transportation? 
I don't think so. But you also have to remember what, what with, with Pete, you know, Pete is somebody who has really, uh, you know, uh, the way best, you know, Mayor, Mayor Pete, uh, well, Secretary Pete now, mm-hmm. he wrote uh, his John F. Kennedy Profiles and Courage essay, award-winning essay. Uh, he's supposed to write about the politician he believed um, had the most courage and won the John F. Kennedy Profiles and Courage essay contest writing about Bernie Sanders. Oh. Um, my, my history there is I actually won the same contest as Pete Buttigieg. I wrote about Wayne Morris and his vote against the, uh, the Gulf of Tonkin resolution. But uh, we, all, we all have our, our choices there. But, the, but Pete, you know, he's somebody who I think a lot of us on the Bernie team found him to be without any ideology and would kind of just say whatever he wanted to say at any given moment. He was for Medicare for all, and then he was for not Medicare for all. Like, you know, he would jump around in his positions. And I I don't think for people like on our campaign, Pete Buttigieg was not our favorite candidate in the race. Well, uh, he's very different from Bernie. You report that when Bernie met with Barack Obama at his Georgetown office in 2018 to tell him he was thinking about running for president again, Obama told him, and I'm quoting, Bernie, you're an Old Testament prophet, a moral voice for our party giving us guidance. Here's the thing. Uh, Here's the thing, though. Prophets don't get to be king. Kings have to make choices. Prophets don't. Are you willing to make those choices? And then Obama made the point that to win the Democratic nomination, Bernie would have to widen his appeal and convince the party to back him, which would mean being a different kind of politician. Yeah. And and look, I think that was that meeting in 2018 um, really predicted some of the things that would go on in the Democratic primary. It's been reported not in my book, but in previous books on the Democratic primary that Barack Obama was the one who after South Carolina, kind of called everyone together and was like, we have to unite against Bernie. And did. Well, didn't Bernie's claim to be a socialist scare many people in the party leadership? I think I think it was more that Bernie refused to wear the blue team jersey would be the best way to put it. I think the socialism thing, I think, first off, it doesn't matter at all. Young voters, it's kind of a uh, uh, non-issue at this point in terms of uh, the Democratic electorate. I do. It think seems to matter to uh, any number of Republicans who are constantly accusing Democrats who aren't necessarily socialists right, of being socialists. That's exactly the point. They they accuse every Republicans have accused Joe Biden of being a socialist, making the word completely meaningless at a certain point, making their accusations completely meaningless to to voters. I think. What what a lot of the establishment was scared of is, look, Bernie's not going to kowtow to the establishment. He's not going to kowtow to billionaire donors. He's not going to kowtow to lobbyists. He's not going to kowtow to kind of the way things have been done in the past because they've been done in the past that way. And I think that scared a lot of people. On the other hand, uh, he thought he might get enough votes in Congress for his Medicare for all plan. I think he thought he'd fight for it. And I think that's the thing about Bernie. I think. For like the majority of Democrats in the House are co-sponsors of Medicare for all. That's not true in the Senate, but I think he he want to fight for it. And that's the point is is he will fight for the values he believes in. Well, you you write and I'm quoting the Democratic Party is a disorganized institution, but it would organize against Bernie Sanders in a way that had not it had not against any candidates, Democratic or Republican. Bernie's premonition that the establishment would never let us win was coming to pass. Yeah, and I think that's that's exactly what what occurred that you know, we saw a unification of the party in the 48 hours between South Carolina and Super Tuesday like we'd never seen before. And I'm not saying that's illegitimate, that's politics, but you have to acknowledge that type of politics exists and that's one of the reasons Bernie lost. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. As I went walking that ribbon of highway, I saw above me that endless skyway. I saw below me 
that golden valley and that on this earth there will be peace, there will be justice, there will be human brotherhood. bit of Bernie Sanders recording when he was younger. Uh, I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Ari Rabin Haft. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, The Fighting Soul, On the Road with Bernie Sanders. Just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212 212- Two zero nine two nine five zero. That's given the number two WBAI dot org, or two one two two zero nine twenty nine fifty. During to do it during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy of the book. But don't forget to make that fifty dollar donation in the name of Leonard Lopez at large, and we thank you very much. And we're talking with Ari Rabinhoft, who's written the Fighting Soul on the Road with Bernie Sanders. It's uh, published by the Liveright. Uh, division of uh, W.W. Norton and Company. In the wake of his 2016 and 2020 campaigns, Democrats have moved to the left on issues like college debt, health care, and social welfare. And Bernie is now the chairman of the Senate Budget Committee. So um, is he considered as much of an outsider in his party as he was in the past? I will leave that to others. But, you know, he is chairman of an of a important Senate committee. He's a member of Democratic leadership. He helped pass the $1.7 trillion first reconciliation package. He really is at the center of public policymaking in this country. Now, uh, some people like Alexandra uh, uh, Cortez uh, really came to his support. But why has he not uh, become more of an ally with Elizabeth Warren? Look, I think they for 20 years, they have worked together on a number of issues and they have partnered where they they agree. I do think people because they are both people who are considered left, people often lump them together, but they are very different politicians. Um, And, you know, Elizabeth Warren will say she's a capitalist to her bones and Bernie calls himself a democratic socialist. And that's just one simple example. Why did Mark Melman call Bernie a self-hating Jew? Well, he it was kind of this indirect hit in a meeting that's private. Look, Mark runs a group called uh, Democratic Majority for Israel. Bernie is somebody who has constantly argued Uh, While supporting the state of Israel, while, you know, in many ways loving the state of Israel, having lived in the state of Israel, he, you know, Bernie, especially with the Netanyahu government, was in a lot of ways uh, upset with uh, the behavior of the state of Israel. As as many as many Jews have been as and upset about how the United States has handled it. Hmm. Mark had a meeting at headquarters with Faz Shakir and myself and Matt Dust, Bernie's foreign policy advisor expressed a lot of things about Bernie. One of them was, and it was, you know, some people, it was a kind of some people say, you know, Bernie acts as a, Bernie, Bernie's embarrassed about his Judaism because he says his father is from Poland, which a Jew would never claim. It was a very weird roundabout way of making the really kind of sick accusation that, that you point out. And look, this is a candidate, Bernie, who did face in our 2020 campaign, visible anti-Semitism from swastikas flown at rallies, which is the most you know visible form of it, to to things like a major publication running a piece called Bernie's Secret Millions, putting the first having a graphic putting the first major Jewish candidate for president in front of a money tree. I mean, the different levels of anti-Semitism, but certainly facing it. What happened when Bernie met with the former? Foreign Minister of Iran, Mohammad Javad Zarif. Uh, well, he was current. He's now former. He was yeah. the foreign minister when we met. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean he, he's now the former. Uh, he's now foreign. Yeah. He was at the Iranian um, UN ambassador's residence, which is across from the Met in New York City. And um, Bernie met, was very into trying to stop the war in Yemen, which in many ways is a proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran. It's a fight between the Yemeni's government and the Houthi rebels. 
and both sides are supplying weapons and fighting. And Bernie has been steadfastly opposed to U the U.S.'s involvement in this war, which we've been involved in refueling Saudi warplanes, providing intelligence, giving bombing strikes, etc. This has been a horrific war where at the time of that meeting with Javad Zarif, 80,000 children had died in that war, um, a horrific humanitarian crisis. And uh, I think the Iranians thought Bernie was on their side because he was so opposing, uh, opposing the U.S. arming the Saudis, who are the, who are the Iranians' enemy. And what the Iranians found, I think, in that meeting and Zarif found was, no, Bernie was against both parties fighting this war, thought both were in the wrong and was willing to call them out on it. And in the meeting, I think, really stood up. And, you know, I think the quotable part of the meeting is we walked out of the ambassador's residence and they had served us a five course lunch along with there was another member of Congress there who was there to advocate for the release of uh, one of his constituents who had been um who was a hostage in a prisoner in Iran. And um, we walked out of the ambassador's residence and Bernie pats his stomach and said, those guys are um, a-holes, but that lunch was delicious. <laughs> you write, I'm quoting, while Bernie Sanders will never be president, his two campaigns have transformed the Democratic Party in this country. Old orthodoxies about government spending and foreign policy have crumbled as a result of the unceasing efforts by an old socialist. Um, now, uh, do you really think that the party has changed? Because now it seems to be backtracking, especially I, I with the possibility of, 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 of losses in the upcoming election. Right. But I do think the standards positions in D.C. of a Democratic Party scared of death and deficit, like you expect losses in a midterm election, but a Democratic Party that that uh, can't, you know, that can't think about anything without thinking about, oh, you know, we, we can't do a one point seven trillion dollar bill. That's a change that Bernie helped bring about. It's a change that half the Democratic House caucus supports Medicare for all. It's a change that the majority of Democrats in 20 in 2016, Bernie was pretty much alone in supporting a fifteen dollar an hour minimum wage among Demo among Democratic uh, politicians. Now it is the standard position that the, those who don't support it are the outliers. Although Donald Trump was the going to be the Republican candidate, Bernie claimed that at its most basic, the election was about preserving democracy. Uh, and uh, was he being prescient? Because it turns out that there was a the possibility of a coup that would have changed the whole structure of American politics. I, I think he saw it coming. It was one of those things where in the fall, Bernie kept talking about how Donald Trump is going to claim this election is illegitimate and we have to speak out about that. And I think there were some in the Democratic Party said, why are you saying this? You shouldn't talk about this. And his point is Donald Trump is clearly going to say this election, try to make this election illegitimate. If he loses, we need to talk about this now. He saw it coming and wanted to speak about it. During the early days of the pandemic, even some Republican members of Congress realized they need to spend more money to keep things going. And he's been the champion of the $15 minimum wage that his party now almost universally embraces. Mitch McConnell said last year, Bernie Sanders is really happy. He may have lost a nomination, but he won the argument over what today's Democratic Party is. More taxes, more spending, more borrowing. I don't think um, Mitch McConnell meant that as a compliment. Well, I, I, you know, let's let's not take anything Mitch McConnell says as honest or forthright. The man is a the man is is perhaps one of the worst representations of what the Republican Party is in a way that, you know, Donald Trump is one of the worst re representations of what a human being is. Mitch McConnell is is a truly uh, sickening political operative. Well, has he said anything about Kevin McCarthy? <laughs> I guess uh, uh, I guess McConnell, of course, is a, uh, a colleague in the Senate. Uh, yes. Um, I, I don't know what Bernie. I don't know if Bernie's ever said anything about Kevin McCarthy, to be honest. I, I don't even know if they've ever interacted with each other. 
Republicans and a couple of Democrats have attributed the rise of inflation to aggressive government spending. And recent poll numbers suggest that will hurt Biden and Democratic candidates in the November elections. Uh, is, is the country moving away from progressive politics, even though it had that flirtation? No, I don't. I don't think so. I think you are going to see this country move more and more towards a world of where people recognize that government can do things for them and that government should be doing things for them uh, and that government's principal job should be alleviating people's pain and suffering. And I think that's what's at the heart of progressive politics. I'm speaking with Ari Rabin Haft. Uh, who served as deputy campaign manager on Bernie Sanders' 2020 presidential campaign. He uh, actually was a, a host at, at Sirius XM for a while. Uh, so uh, he's done some radio as well. And he's, uh, he's written a book called The Fighting Soul on the Road with Bernie Sanders, which is published by Live Right, which is a division of W.W. Norton and Company. This is WBAI New York. 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. You say that Bernie Sanders has done more to shape our history than anyone else who hasn't reached the White House? I think there are a few people who ran for president who lost who have shaped history in significant ways. I think on the Republican side, you think about Barry Goldwater in 1964, lost to Lyndon Johnson, but leads to Ronald Reagan. Bernie is very much the same, like somebody who doesn't reach the White House, but does change kind of the trajectory of our political system. And I think that is an important place in history. And uh, you uh, argue that uh, his real opponents... Well, he, well, first of all, you say that uh, he is the rare politicians motivated by principle, not power. But you argue that his real opponents would, were the members of the Democratic establishment. In the primary, yes. In the primary, in the Democratic primary, the members of the Democratic establishment sought to beat him and frankly succeeded. Uh, the, the, you know, Barack Obama, that, that interview we talked about, Sorry, that conversation we talked about previously. I, I do think in that race, he would have cited members of the Democratic establishment as his opponents, and they were. Do you think that Bernie could have won the presidency? Absolutely. I think winning the Democratic primary was a harder step than winning the presidency. And that, why I say that is he wouldn't have run unless he thought he could beat Donald Trump. And we did a ton of research. And what we continually found is every Democratic candidate holds the kind of states Hillary won, right? And we're in an elect, the electoral college system is, is very, it's a math-based system, so you just have to do the math. And Bernie easily beat Trump in every time a poll was taken by double digits in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. You win that set of seats, you win the presidency. And because of the voter base that Bernie attracts, because of voters harmed by trade, because of a lot of voters who you think of in Trump camp, who in many ways prefer Bernie, Bernie wins on that electoral map. He hated the political part of political campaigns, you write, like fundraising and hobnobbing. How much did his campaign finally cost? Uh, about $200 million. Wow. So that meant a lot of people were donating to his campaign. Right. And, but what I mean by fundraising is he never, we never did a single high-dollar fundraiser. He never made high-dollar fundraising calls. He never had that. Like most politicians will spend hours on the phone with that. He never did. We had the privilege, because of who Bernie was, of a low-dollar fundraising base of that, who on average was actually donating under $20 in this campaign per contribution, who would donate again and again and again and again to support his campaign. What were his concerns with Facebook and Google? Um, his concerns with social media, the ones I talk about in the book and the story I talk about in the book was Facebook was, um, their algorithm was very clearly suppressing uh, his page. And it, this was his Senate page. And by the way, they acknowledged this in a meeting finally that they had flipped a switch on the algorithm that was suppressing the page. Um, and we had had these series of meetings. And at one point, 
one of the Facebook lobbyists who was in a meeting, and by the way, some of these meetings involved extremely high up people at Facebook, including Adam Osari, who heads Instagram now, but was then head of Newsfeed, including a phone call with Sheryl Sandberg. You know, Bernie had had these conversations, and in one meeting, the lobbyist for Facebook said, you know, you could do better if you listen to what we think about what issues you should talk about, what we think about what, how you should, uh, who should appear on your page, how you construct things. And Bernie walked out of the meeting and he was like, you're saying you should tell me how I, what my government office should communicate. And they said, yes. And he walked out of the meeting. This one of the other Facebook lobbyists turns to us and says, well, that's your boss is a miserable old coot. At which point I go to throw them out of the office because you don't get to do that to a senator in a senator's office. And there's a series of apologies. And in the course of those apologies, the same lobbyist says, well, I worked for Chuck Schumer and I think he's a miserable old coot too. Mm -hmm. And I think overall that arrogance, that belief that they should control our democracy is, is a huge concern to Bernie. Now, if you say the name Bernie, I think most people who follow American politics know who you're talking about. But didn't the members of his staff call him Earl? Why Earl? Uh, I don't know why Earl. And it wasn't that we called him to his face, Earl. But if like Jeff Weaver or Faz and I were having a conversation on the street about Bernie, we would have, be having a conversation about Earl. And the point was to have a name. I don't even know how it started, but to have a name that wasn't Bernie because it's just too recognizable to say Bernie said this. So it'd be Earl said this or Earl did this or Earl has this problem or Earl is, hmm. you know, doing this today. Uh, Earl was kind of our code word for Bernie. The book ends with uh, a, a look at uh, how uh, Bernie Sanders, who we might call an iconoclastic outsider, now appreciates the satisfactions of being a centered insider. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the kind of before the epilogue, the final moments are passing the $1.7 trillion reconciliation bill. And, you know, we had this moment. It was we had been on the floor since it was like two in the afternoon and we'd been on the floor since nine in the morning the day before with, with one of the longest series of votes in the history of the Senate. Well, could that, um, that vote have even uh, occurred if it wasn't really a pandemic relief bill? Um, I mean, reconciliation could have occurred. It's a process. I don't know what the I, I you know, I, I, I think that first bill of a president's term, I think the president has a lot of leeway with their own party and it was going to be a partisan bill. So, yes. Um, but we're on the we we really accomplished a ton of his agenda in that bill. And after that long on the floor, we're walking back through the tunnels that separate the Capitol building from the offices. And, you know, he said, like, that was we really got something done. That was fun. Mm -hmm. and, and he really did look content in that moment. So you're not working for him anymore. No. Uh, do you miss being in the middle of uh, politics? Well, he's not going to run for president again. So uh, uh, what do you think his plans are for the future? Well, I mean, his office did send a memo out two weeks ago. And, you know, they have to answer questions about this, saying if Joe Biden doesn't run, he has not made up his mind about 2024 hmm. if Joe Biden doesn't run. And it was very clear about that. Well, he would be um, 80, what, 82, 83? Yeah, but he's kind of this unstoppable force. I mean, last week he was in, or two weeks ago, just take that Sunday, he was in uh, Staten Island with Amazon workers, and he flew to Richmond with Starbucks workers. You know, a day later, he's outside the White House protesting for student debt relief outside the White House. I, I think Bernie is an unstoppable force. I won't be a part of that presidential campaign. I'm way too, I'm worn out. I, I couldn't do another one. Bernie, he's unstoppable. So what are your plans to go back into radio? Uh, Sirius no, I XM? Don't, no, I don't think I, I do radio again. Um, I've mainly been, I've been doing a lot of uh, travel, a lot of writing, a lot of other projects kind of outside of politics to reset myself during the pandemic and in these moments. And, um, and actually also a lot of photography, to be honest. Well, uh, the book has gotten wonderful response so far. 
And it's been my great pleasure to talk with you about it. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you for having me. And it's, it's such an honor that uh, WBAI, is, uh, I heard during the break, is selling the book. Not selling the book, but we're giving it for a donation. And I very much encourage people to make donations to BAI and other radio stations like it. And we hope that people will continue doing that. And I've been speaking with Ari Rabinhaft, R-A-B-I-N-H-A-V-T. His book, The Fighting Soul on the Road with Bernie Sanders, is published by Live Right, which is a division of W.W. Norton. It's been a great pleasure having you on our show. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Leonard. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and you'd like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows at WBAI, streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed one million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else that you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Now, before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. Uh, That's 212-209-2950 or give and then the number to WBAI.org. We we need your help to keep bringing you this uh, unique, in-depth content, information you just don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at large right now can receive a copy of the book that we've been discussing. The Fighting Soul on the Road with Bernie Sanders by Ari Rabin Haft. So why not make that call right now to 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. Or you might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy for $10, $15, $20, whatever uh, amount you're comfortable with, which allows us to plan for the future. And we'll say thank you with a WBAI tote back to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $15 a month or more. But either way, I hope you'll call right now because BAI relies 100% on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. So if you tune in regularly to Leonard Lopate at large, why not let us know that you appreciate what we do on the show by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to play a part in keeping this historic station. We're the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored. Help us stay alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. And we hope you can join us tomorrow when Kathy Scott Clark will join us to discuss her new book, The Forever Prisoner. We'll see you then.